0: Thank you, McKenzie. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. It's good to be here with you. It's cold out this morning. If you are in the business of looking good and feeling good, this was a good morning to stay in bed. It was a lot cozier. But you showed up here and you came to church. Even in our culture, that doesn't look very good to many. You might ask yourself, why? Why do I come to church? I remember when I first started going to church in a way that I actually wanted to, it was because I had a restless heart, a deeply restless heart. And I suspect that every one of us here today has a restless heart to some degree, problems. Problems in relationships with others, with your family, with spouse, questions about your future, what's gonna happen, how am I gonna make it, finances, how to get the money I need, what to do with the money that I have. There's a restlessness involved with us. We just sung a few songs that talked about guilt, shame, brokenness. There's dark sins that we all carry that we hope never see the light of day that nobody finds out about. Our hearts are restless deep inside. And in that sense, I think that it's safe to say we all We all have a restless heart and we desire to be changed, to be made different, not so restless. It would be good, the fluctuations of our internal life are exhausting, aren't they? From hopefulness to despair, sometimes in the course of two minutes. One news story, one news story in your truck listening to the news and you hear over and over recordings of machine gun fire coming down from a hotel into a crowd. It causes a restlessness deep inside of us. So we're talking about deep human core level restlessness. And you ask, how does that change? How does the fiber of my existence change to where I'm not so shaken or restless? St. Augustine said this a long time ago. He said, you, and this is in the opening paragraph of his Confessions, a book of prayer. And he says, you, God, have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it finds itself in you. Your heart is restless until it rests in you. I think based on this, uh, if you went up to Augustine and you said, hey, Augustine, how do people change, man? I think that he would say something like, it starts with the heart, my friend. That's the seat of change, right in the heart. You need to look at what you love and why. But after Augustine, maybe a thousand years later, another guy, a French philosopher named René Descartes comes along, and he tells a totally different story, and it changes the way that everybody thinks. It's revolutionary. We call it the Cartesian Revolution. He comes in and he says, Cogito ergo sum." I think, therefore I am. This was a radical revision of a human being's understanding him or herself. My existence is bound up in the fact that I think. So what he gave to us was a picture of a human being that is primarily a thinking being. So when a person asked Augustine, who am I? Augustine would have turned around and said, you'll discover that when your heart rests in Jesus. But if somebody said that same thing to Descartes, who am I? Descartes would have turned his attention inward. Augustine said, turn your attention outward to Jesus. That's how you'll discover who you are. Descartes said, if you want to know who you are, turn yourself inward. Self-discovery, self-actualization, think That's how you can discover it. It starts with the mind. It's all about the mind. So from this angle, the restlessness that you feel is going to be solved or changed or helped with information. School, books, talks, lectures, blogs, sermons, These will be the things that help to change this restlessness inside of me. Habits of the mind are what we need to become different. The thing that matters more than anything is what you think. But do you remember in Mark earlier, as we've been studying through Mark for some time, these people come up to Jesus and they say to Jesus, they say, hey, of all the things God has ever instructed or told us to do, what's the number one absolute, boiled down, most important? And Jesus says, here it is. You need to know who to love and how to love. So who to love? Love the Lord your God. How? With all your heart and mind and strength and soul, everything about you, love God. And love your neighbor. Who? Your neighbor. How? Your, as you love yourself, as you take care of yourself, So what's the most important possible thing that God would want us to be doing? The action word is love. Love God, love others. Jesus seemed to think that first and foremost, we are loving beings. I love, therefore I am. Perhaps you could put it this way. You are what you love. You're not defined by what you know. You're defined by your desire, your affection, what you want deep down. What is it you want? This is where you're at. You say, man, if that's true, how does Jesus change our loves? How does he bend our desires and our affections? How does he change that piece? And some of you will rightly say, through grace. Jesus changes our hearts by his grace alone. And we say, yeah, that's fantastic. Nobody's going to jump up and argue, most likely. But then we have to think a little bit deeper. Grace, caris, is a gift. What is the gift that Jesus gives us to change our hearts? You might say, well, the gift that he gives us is salvation. Salvation. He saved me from my sins. And that gift, that's what changes my heart. But notice you've stepped back into the Cartesian revolution. The knowledge that I am saved will change my heart. You think that it starts with what you know about your future. That's going to be what changes my heart. But is that what changes us? Here's a great, this is a great author I've been reading a lot lately. His name is Jamie Smith. Some of you might recognize him as James K.A. Smith. He says this, And here he wants to talk about the difference between thinking and your heart. What you love and what you know. Do you ever experience a gap between what you know and what you do? Have you ever found that new knowledge and information don't seem to translate into a new way of life? So pause for a second. You might think... I know the fact that I'm going to be saved or that Jesus died for my sins. We'll come to the table later today to remember that information. But does it ever feel like what you're doing here at the communion table by remembering that information is actually not changing you? He continues on. Have you ever found that new knowledge and information don't seem to translate into a new way of life? Have you ever had the experience of an incredibly illuminating and informative sermon on a Sunday, waking up Monday morning with a new resolve and a conviction to be different, and then already failing by Tuesday night? (laughs) I do. (laughs) I feel that way all the time. You're hungry for knowledge, you're thirstily drinking up biblical ideas, you long to be Christ like. And yet all of that knowledge doesn't seem to translate into a new way of life. It seems that we cannot think our way to holiness. It's safe to say that you and I solve thinking problems with habits of the mind. But how are we set free from the slavery of distorted loves, bent affections, Affections, broken desires. I think there's probably many ways. But this morning's passage in Mark 14 that Mackenzie's already read, it gives us one of the greatest and most powerful gifts. What Jesus does in this text we've already read is he gives us a gift. It's an incredible gift. I think it's one of the most powerful gifts in all of transformation history, if you will. It's a gift that molds us and shapes our hearts. It restores our hearts, and you might say, and I think we'll see this this morning, it restores our hearts. Rather than a habit of the mind, Jesus gives us the habit of a meal. So I'd like you to turn with me to Mark 14, verse 12. And this is a text. It's probably one of the most recited texts in the Bible. And it's where Jesus gives us a gift And it's a habit of a meal. Here we go. Verse 12. On the first day of the festival of the unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where will you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of the disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house that he enters, The teacher asks, where is the guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. So the disciples left. They went into the city, and they found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. I want to look at this more closely for a second. Jesus is prepared. I want you to see that here. This really mattered to him. I think you might too quickly jump into this and see some sort of mystical foretelling of things that would come to pass. I don't actually think that's what's going on here. John tells us uh, that Jesus was making trips into and out of Jerusalem frequently in this time. I think in those trips into and out of Jerusalem, Jesus set this up. He really wanted to have the Passover meal with these guys in a specific spot. So he's in Jerusalem and sets it all up ahead of time. And he makes a plan. I think it's important to see that, how he intentionally wanted to make this happen. And then you notice he says, here's how you're going to find the guy. Look for a dude carrying a jar of water. Now, I think I've told you in a sermon or two back, during the Passover festival, the week of the Passover, Jerusalem is absolutely slam-packed with people. Every bit of lodging, everything, everywhere is just filled. There are hundreds of thousands of people all over the place. And so Jesus has got to figure out a way to get them directed in and find the right guy. So he says, look for a dude carrying a jug of water. And we say, gosh, that seems like it would be kind of hard to spot. I'll tell you, in our culture today, that would be like me saying, go down to Pioneer Square and look for a squirrel riding a Harley. You'd say, well, geez, (laughs) that's odd. I don't see that often, you know. You would never see a guy carrying a jar of water. So he sets it up with a very clear marker. He says, when you see this, you're going to know the right place to go. And they pick up on it, and they find him. And they enter Jerusalem. And on the day before the Passover meal, they make the preparations. And this was a big deal. Passover is no joke. It's a major time. When Mark tells us that they prepared the Passover, he's talking about a lot more than cooking food and setting the table, okay? The requirement to observe this Passover in and of itself was a gift. And it's a gift with a lot of history. God gave them this requirement back in the Exodus, he said, Here's what, I want you to do this every single year, and I want you to teach your kids to do it, and I want those kids to teach their kids to do it, and just keep on doing it forever and ever. Just keep on remembering this. By doing this yearly ritual, he was shaping their hearts. You see, in the Exodus narrative up to the Passover, God has said, I want to make you who are not a people into my people, and we've talked about this. It's not just salvation from the bad place to the good place, it's salvation from ourselves. And so God has said, I want to make you new. He rescues them from Egypt and then he says, I want you to always practice this Passover kind of meal. The meal is gonna take you back to that formative moment. The meal is gonna take your children to a formative moment that they weren't able to be at because they weren't born yet. But by taking them back there, you're gonna relive and reenact the greatest story of salvation ever. I'm gonna shape your heart through that. And so how does he do that? Well, let's look at the way the Passover breaks down. There's a lot more to it than I'll say here, but there's a couple of really major things that go on every year when people eat the Passover feast. There's a lamb that's butchered, And roasted over fire, not boiled. It has to be roasted. The lamb reminds them of how they were protected by God. He said, slaughter the lamb and put the blood over the doorpost. And they remember how God protected them through the blood of that covenant. The unleavened bread reminds them of the bread that they ate during their slavery years in Egypt. So when they sit down for the meal and break bread, they're remembering how they were enslaved. They remember those days. There's a bowl of salt water that they'll set on the table. They set out a bowl of salt water, why? To remind them of the tears that were shed when they were living in bondage in Egypt and the suffering and the pain there. The bitter herbs are similar, horseradish and chicory and endive, some lettuces. They remind them of the bitterness of slavery in Egypt. They make this kind of fruit pasty stuff uh, it's a mixture of apples, kind of like an applesauce with pomegranates and nuts and dates all ground up into kind of this mush. <laughs> I don't know. And then, and then there's strips of cinnamon often in it. And it's to remind them of the bricks. All the bricks that they had to make. You know, straw and mud and you got a little it's, At least it doesn't taste like mud. You know, it's kind of fruity. But you have this remembering of that slavery time. And then there's four cups of wine. Each cup takes on about a half of a pint, a little bit more, and they'll, they'll drink the cups of wine at four different times throughout the meal. And the cups of wine are attached to the four major promises that God gave them in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 7. I've got them here. If you have a slide, Steve, did I give you that slide? No. There's a slide. You can look it up in Exodus 6 or 7. It is, I will free you from the burdens. Ah, oh, I just remembered. Steve, I never sent you that slide. I apologize. <laughs> That's my fault. But here's what the four promises were. He said, I will free you. I will redeem you. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. I will free you from the burdens of the Egyptians and deliver you from slavery. Now, he's saying this to them when they're slaves, this is right when the plagues are coming, right? And God says to his people, here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to free you. I'm going to redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. He says, I will take you as my people. I will be your God. You've got to imagine yourself as a Jewish person celebrating the Passover feast in Jesus' day. You're participating in the habit of a meal, a ritual, And it's taking you back to that formative moment, that time when God became so present in your reality that you you could see his activity in a visceral and tangible way. And look, this command to observe the Passover feast was not a command from God to reread the verses and recite the correct history. As though he wanted to make sure that you had the right information about the Exodus. It was not a gathering to explain the correct thoughts about the Exodus who was there, what happened, when, how, why. It wasn't that. No, it was a command to reenact, to live into that moment, to literally touch and taste and smell and feel that moment. So, Jewish people, by Jesus' day, have been eating and drinking God's story of salvation ever since it began. It served to form something deep into their subconscious. It formed their love for God. Now, let's bring the pain a little bit more here. I want you to try to feel what it would be like to be an ancient Hebrew slave in Egypt, back in that time. There might be some correlation even to our day here, but you're back in that day. You are enslaved to the world around you. There's no way out. Life is stuck, life is characterized by pain. Life sometimes feels like it's just literally not worth living. Your heart is restless, your family is broken. Children suffering, your parents are aging, or your parents are arguing, depending on your family. Your back hurts, your heart hurts. Your future is nothing more than the same old, same old, more bricks, more bricks, more bricks. You don't even get a weekend to work to. (laughs) You just keep on laboring endlessly. You're constantly broke, you're in debt, The thought of not having enough to carry on is a constant obsession, and your spiritual life just feels like a distant memory. Can you imagine being there? Your heritage is slavery. Your people have been slaves for hundreds of years. You're stuck. And then a man of God comes to you, kind of out of the blue, Moses. God sends this man to you. And then God says, in the midst of this turmoil and suffering, he says, I'm going to free you. I'm going to make you my own. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to be your God. That's an amazing moment when God lays those promises on you. I think in such a cold and dark place, that kind of promise would be so warm. It would be an intoxicating kind of love. I think they tie those promises to cups of wine on purpose. You know? It's an amazing moment of provision from God. Mark tells us that they were getting the meal ready. He's talking about a lot more than setting a table and cooking food. This is the habit of a meal. This is the time of remembrance. And so, as it says at the end of verse 16, they prepared the Passover. Now let's keep going in verse 17. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12, and while they were reclining in the table and eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one, they said to him, surely you don't mean me. It's not me. You're not talking about me, are you? It is one of the 12, he replied, the one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go out just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man, It would be better for him if he had not been born. Man, if you're like me, you're, just, you're kind of sitting there and you're like, is this really the first thing out of Jesus' mouth right when they all sit down? It's like, hey guys, welcome, welcome to the Passover dinner. One of you is going to betray me to death, Peter, how's that CrossFit gym going? You know, it's just like, the it's just so abrupt. So you read that and you're just like, okay, we're just cutting right to the chase. So that pops out for you. But beside that kind of stuff, we've already noticed how Mark writes in a very terse way. He leaves a lot of detail out. So rather than those kind of things that pop for you, as you read this, what are some of the things that kind of jump out to you? What grabs you? One thing that grabs me is that Jesus knows the heart. He knows that one of these men is going to betray him. And and not just randomly, I know it's one of them, I don't know which one. He knows exactly which one it is. He knows the heart. He knows what's going on. This confusion is another thing that I see. In the disciples who are sitting at this table, there's confusion. What? What? You would think they would know among their brethren who the betrayer was. Oh, yeah, about time. We've always known Judas was a bit of a punk, you know. Thanks, Jesus. No, they're like, what? How is this possible? They're confused. They're upset. They can't imagine this would be the case. It just doesn't compute. And then this statement, it would, it would be better to not have been born. Ooh, that is intense talk right there you imagine hearing that from your close friend? I don't know if the average Portlander today could stomach the way that Jesus talks in such frank ways. I think Jesus is far less afraid of the truth than we are. Can you imagine the buzzkill that befalls the sacred Passover table when Jesus says, yeah, it would have been better if he hadn't been born? I mean, you're kind of there to celebrate, and he's kind of laying down the gauntlet. Woe to you if you're going to betray me. I doubt that made Judas feel very good. But I also doubt that Jesus said this out of anger or with any kind of intent to harm Judas. It's almost as though Jesus draws Judas into this moment, this space where the remembrance is totally focused on God's great love, right in that space where, where God's great love is permeating every single crust of bread, every drop of wine, every morsel of roasted lamb, the people, the fellowship, all of it is the presence of God's great love. And I think right there, Jesus is making one final appeal from love to Judas. Is this really it, man? Is this how you're going to roll? But Judas chose to bypass that great love along the lines of some other pursuit that felt better or looked better to him. That's a heart-wrenching scene, isn't it? Jesus predicting Judas' betrayal. And yet here Jesus is. Mark is showing us that Jesus knew exactly what was happening he knew exactly what was going on in the hearts of these, these real human beings right there at the table with him, and he knew where all of this was headed. The whole story was going to a certain end. He knew it. That's one thing to have courage to go and fight in a battle when you, when you think you might be able to survive. I mean, that's great courage when any warrior enters into battle. What if you know for a 100% surefire fact that you're going to go and die? <laughs> Isn't that even an amplified sense of courage? So you see all this stuff. You see Jesus' bravery. You're reminded that we are in Jesus the brave. And this bravery of Jesus puts him at rest with the Father. The kind of rest that allows him to be meal planning, a large banquet in the city that will seize him. (laughs) You know, imagine if you knew for a fact that here in Portland there were people who were coming to arrest you, beat you, and kill you. For, For one thing, I probably would not want to stay in Portland. I wouldn't come into Portland. And if I was here, I wouldn't be out and about and having a party, you know? You see this restfulness in Jesus. He's doing this one last meal before he goes to his death. What a gift he gives. In the midst of sure Pain and suffering, Jesus is still thinking about how to give great blessing to his people. Let's finish the passage now. Thinking about those things. Verse 22. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and, he, and when he had Oh, when he had given thanks, that's where we get our word Eucharist, thanksgiving. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, take it. This is my body, or receive it. This is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He said to them, Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The Passover meal, you're there in this upper room. Jesus is with you. The king of the cosmos has invited you to his table, okay? You gotta, try, you gotta get in there. You gotta say, okay, what is Jesus trying to do here? Is, this, is he trying to just say, here's a good, solid, memorable way to keep the information alive. I can attach it to a meal, that'll be good. This is how I can keep people remembering the correct info. If it is, then if you think about it, what you do doesn't really matter as long as you know. It's about knowing why you do it, and that's easy to answer, right? Why do you do communion? Well, I do communion for this reason. We do it because Jesus said to do this in remembrance of him. We do this to remember that he died for our sins. That's why. But I want to suggest this. If that's how you see it, It's very likely that communion becomes an odd instruction to follow a religious ritual. Just because that's what you do if you're a church-going Christian. Why do you take communion? I don't know. We just do it. Why do you do it? To remember that he died for us. What's important about it? To remember. To know that knowledge. To remember that information. But I want you to remember, he's building something new on the foundation of the Passover meal. Notice Jesus doesn't come in and say, hey guys, I'm here, don't worry about the Passover anymore, doesn't matter. No, he says, go and prepare the Passover meal. That's a foundation. There's a, you might think of it as a structure or a system or something like that that God has set into place and it's meaningful and it has shaped the people of God. Jesus doesn't scrap all that He builds upon that foundation. He said, this has been a shaping tool. It's still going to be a shaping tool. But now, rather than looking at the bitter herbs of slavery or looking at the unleavened bread as a symbol of being enslaved, you're going to look at it differently. I'm going to focus on just the bread and the wine. We're not even going to talk about that other stuff here. So Jesus builds on the Passover festival, but he reinvests it with meaning and he takes the focus from back then, what God had done, to right now. This is God manifesting or incarnating in our presence. This is the next time where God made himself known to you. It's happening right now. It's a gift from God to continue living in that story. It's a gift to keep reenacting it. Reenacting that time when they knew God said, I will free you. I will redeem you. I will make you mine. I will be your God. Retelling, reliving, reenacting the story over and again. It made it less possible to forget. And not just that you would forget the information. It was a remembrance that was much more holistic, if you will. We like that word a lot today. It helped them remember the great love that they had for God. If you're sitting, as we just did a couple minutes ago, trying to be in that slave moment when God makes those promises, do you not in that moment say, whoa, are you not filled with hope? Oh my gosh, he's going to break us free. This is really happening. How, why would he do this? You're you're brought back into all of that stuff. It's not just the data. That tremendous thankfulness that they had for God and what he was doing on that infamous night of the Passover. The habit of the meal truly worked to shape their hearts. While their world would seek to form them, and this is what's happening to you and me every single day. Our world around us is always forming us and seeking to form us. It would have us conform to its own ways, but instead God works to transform us, not to conform to the ways of the world. So the world tries to form us, and I think God counterforms us. He forms us differently. Don't you suppose that Jesus is just doing the same thing here? He's giving us a gift that literally reshapes our hearts. And it's his own story about living and breathing and dying and raising. He wants us to find out who we are, not by thinking through it just right, but by finding ourselves in him. When Descartes said, I think, therefore I am, he was preaching a story of good news to the world. And it was a story that leads to self-fulfillment, to self-centeredness, the incurvature of the soul. He caused us to turn inward to find out our existence. I'm trying to discover myself. When you're trying to discover yourself in our world, mostly what that means is you're trying to think about your interior life with your brain. But if it's true that we can only know ourselves in relationship to Jesus, then... The Last Supper was a moment when there were 12 disciples who were learning about who they were in that moment. And what Jesus was saying to them was, you are my beloved. I am here for you. I'm here because of you. I love you and yes to you. You are welcome in my life. It's an amazing moment, and he wants us, I think, to keep going back to that spot. It shapes us. It's not the story of I think, therefore I am. It's a story that asks us what do we love. Other voices today tell stories that shape your heart, stories that mold and shape the way that you love. One story is this, life is short. It's a pretty common story in the world today, and that works super powerfully to shape what you love. If it is true that life is short, then you will love experiencing as many fun and pleasurable things as possible while you still have a chance. And inside you, you will grow and your desires for certain things will amplify because of the story that tells you life is short. There's another story that says, you can become lovable. It's a very common story in our world today, and you see it in every billboard. You want to be lovable? Look like this woman. Be smart like this man. Have this product. Then you can be lovable. If you do this, if you look this way, and that changes from culture to generation, but if you do these things, you can become lovable. Here's one more. This is probably the most prominent story of our day, and this is the story that says the good life for you, the good life is experienced when you look good and when you feel good. That is your story, and notice what it shapes in you. If you look good, if your reputation is solid, if you're sexy and attractive, if you look good, that's your best life, and if you feel good. That's your best life and that shapes what you love. You learn to love to feel good. You learn to despise anything that makes you feel bad, right? You learn to love to look good and you'll do anything to look good, including lying about yourself, putting on a face in a book for the world to see. You'll do all these things because your loves have been trained by the stories of our world. And then, no matter what you think, your loves are what are governing your life. But Jesus' story is so different. He has not said in his gospel that life is short at all. He said, life is eternal. This is just the beginning. Which direction are you going? He has not said, you can become lovable. He said, you are lovable. I love you. You exist right now as lovable. The fact that you are my beloved, I'm going to lay down my life for you. This is what love looks like. This gospel of Jesus has never said anything like your best life is if you look good and feel good. This is the Savior who's disfigured and dismayed, who gets broken and wrecked. No, he tells us a story that says, don't pay any attention to the world's stories. Focus on me alone. Love God. Love the neighbor as yourself. This bread, when you break it, when you come up today, This bread that you eat, when you break it, when you eat it, it is my body. This wine or this sweet grape juice that you drink, when you drink it, it's my blood. The story of your life, the place in history where you first realized how deeply I loved you. I want to take you back to that moment. And you guys in 2017 Portland don't get to go back to about 33 A.D., first century little room in Jerusalem. We never get to go there. But we do when we enter into the Lord's Supper rightly. And we do entering in as sinners, needing Jesus. And we do trying to soak in all that he was meaning to these people in that time. Just like the Passover was about re-entering that moment when they were realizing we're getting out of slavery. It's remembering that you're invited to the table of your creator. The king of the universe says yes to you and you now get to live with him. When we come to the table of communion, I never ever want us to think about it as a Sunday sip and a snack. It's kind of every Sunday come up and take a little sip and have a snack and then remember a couple fun facts about Jesus and sit down and do it all again next week and then kind of critique the way it's done and it's kind of weird and hollow and it doesn't make sense. It can all happen that way easily. I guarantee there's not one human being in this room who who has not thought, I think the way we do communion is weird or it doesn't really make sense to me, or it's not really doing it for me. Every one of us has felt that at one time or another. Today I want you to go from here, remembering that it's more than just remembering information about Jesus, but it's trying to recall that moment when God himself said yes to you and invited you to his table. Trying to get your heart into that Eucharist place of thanksgiving And saying, I don't know why or how it was that you thought saving me was the right thing to do, but you did. And I am so thankful. Remembrance like this, if we don't see it through Descartes' lens, is a remembrance of a love, a feeling, an emotion, and the information. It's all combined. Giving thanks. Do this, God said back in Exodus, to be formed by all that I have done, do this, Jesus says in Jerusalem, to be formed by the good news that I have shown you through my life. So, if we're coming to the communion table with thanksgiving, remembering that it was for freedom that he set us free, remembering that Jesus' own comfort, you know how comfortable those disciples, not Judas, he wasn't comfortable at all, he was restless. But imagine what those disciples felt as they recognized Jesus was saying yes to them. It proved the chains of the world. Jesus' love proves the chains of slavery that the world really has on us. Remembering that he's our great king and our redeemer and the one whose blood made us not into weak slaves of evil, but into bold slaves of love. And then When we are truly doing the same thing that these disciples were doing back in that secluded room, we're doing this. We're remembering the king and everything that he was. There they sat in fellowship with the king. He invited them to come to find rest and be with him. You ever realize that's what we get to do every Sunday here? That's a gift. So often I don't think of it as a gift. It's a gift. We step into that upper room. When you come to the table today, I want you to step into the upper room. Don't do it hastily. You don't need to. These are not meant to be dispensaries of communion goods. They're meant to be a place to enter onto that table with Jesus. Set your heart before him. Invite him to retrain you. Remembering as you come up today and take that bread and that wine that he has said yes to you. Confused? Were all his disciples confused? Oh yeah, Mark has said that a million times. Sinful? Does Judas still get to sit at the table? He does. You come up feeling the weight of your guilt and know that you're a betrayer as well. I come to the table as one who betrays Jesus, even when I don't intend to. And he says, yeah, you're still welcome at my table. But he does say, are you going to keep on betraying me right to the end? And he says, if you do, whoa, you better really think about that call. I'm saying yes to you, Jesus says. Will you say yes back to him? Here's one more thought from from Jamie Smith, and then we'll close. He says this, some mornings you wake up, and let's be honest, you just don't want to get up. You don't want to work out. Your bed is so comfortable and the world outside is so cold and it would be so easy to just stay where you are. But the people of God are not there. And the sacraments of the Spirit are not there. And you know that even if you don't feel like it, you need the meal that is the Lord's Supper. You need the nourishment of the word. You know the sort of person that you want to be. And you know that by immersing yourself in this story, this is how the spirit is going to change your habits. And it will change your heart. Let's pray. Father, teach us to see your grace not in an event. Teach us to see your gift to us not in big, powerful, magical, moving ways, but in the ordinary things of life. Like a weekly Lord's Supper where we gather together to never, ever, ever let too much time pass before we re-enter that context of love with you. Help us to be men and women who shed the stories of this world that say life is short and we need to look good and feel good because that's the best life. Condition us through your gospel and through our participation in your communion so that we could be trained, our hearts could be trained to find rest in you and not in anything else. I pray that you would help us, Father, show mercy upon us and know that we are trying each day to love you more and more. Amen.